Okay. So we're going to spend some time now looking at the scriptures together, and we are going to be in Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. Romans 8, verse 31 through 39. If you don't have a Bible, we've placed them under the chairs, and it'll be page 945 in those black Bibles. Would love for you to grab one of those, crack it open. Uh, We like to set aside time every week to study the scriptures because we believe that the scriptures speak to us with the relevance and with the authority of Jesus. So we want to hear what God has to say in his word. We want to study it. We want to understand it. So that's that's what we're going to spend some time doing now. Uh, We're calling it, If God is for us. It's this question that Paul sets up this passage with. If if God is for us, like, like what difference would that make in your life if you really if you really believe that God was for you, what would that look like in your life? There's a famous Old Testament story um, about one of the greatest uh, warriors in the Old Testament. Later on in our passage, it's going to talk about being conquerors through difficulty and suffering. And this story in the Old Testament is one of the most famous stories. As a matter of fact, some of you didn't grow up in church, but you've still heard this story. It's a story about this famous warrior who was bigger than everybody else, He was louder than everybody else. His spear was bigger. His armor was bigger. I saw you mouthing it. Yeah, his name was Goliath. You ever heard of Goliath? He was this big monster of a warrior. And he stood in opposition against God's people, Israel. And so he came out when they were aligned, the two armies kind of camped across a valley, and he challenged them to send their best warrior out to fight him. And who was the best warrior? Who was the giant of Israel? Well, the giant of Israel, we know just a few chapters earlier, we were told that Israel had picked a king for themselves. This man who was good looking, he was strong, and he was a head taller than everybody else in Israel. His name was Saul. They had made him the king. Unfortunately, they made a king a king based on really just what he looked like on the outside. And so there was this mighty warrior in Israel who was terrified of Goliath. He was the hero of Israel, but he was afraid to face Goliath. And this is the point where we are supposed to um, sympathize with the characters in the story. That's the point where Israel is, is shaking in their boots, where they're afraid, where they don't know what to do, and the champion who's got the skills is afraid even to go out and face the giant. That that's who we're supposed to see ourselves as in the story. Because then the champion comes in, this uh hero who later becomes King David, but he's just a little boy. He's this puny little guy. He can't even fit in the big armor of King Saul. And he goes out and you know the story. He ends up defeating Goliath. And in his defeat of Goliath, he defeats Goliath, the champion. And we're told really it it all centers around his trust in God. That he goes out there not trusting in himself, not trusting in how strong he is, not trusting in the armor of Saul, but trusting in the God who they served. And that that's what makes the difference. And so on on one level, that should appeal to us, we should trust God like David did, right? But as I said, it also points us forward to this later on descendant of King David named Jesus, who is the one who always trusts. Because there are going to be days when we don't trust, but we're told that we have a champion who went out and fought for us on the day that we were afraid. And we can trust him. And so what Paul is going to tell us here in Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, is we have a greater champion who makes us champions because he trusted perfectly 
in the times when we did not. Let's read verses 31 through 39. Again, chapter 8 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. These are Big words, these are heavy words. We're gonna pray and ask God to help us to believe this, okay? Let's pray. God, we, we pray that you would meet us here and that your spirit would uh, enliven our hearts so that we would hear what you're saying to us and that we would believe it, that we can trust you, that you are for us. And God, we pray that that would change us, that we would live differently, that we would step out in faith because of how reliable you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. One of the best ways uh, this concept that, that Paul's just been hammering over the last several weeks, I think, has been brought home for me is in the words of a sermon by Tim Keller, where he clarifies that God doesn't love us because of something that we did to make ourselves lovable, but he loves us because he loves us. He loves us because he loves us, right? Now, that sounds circular, but sorry, that's, that's how it works, It's not about you. And so when we come to this passage and what we saw last week and the week before, when we come to everything that Romans has to say, our hope is in the love of God, not in our response. Our response comes after seeing the love of God, how great he is, how much he loves us. There's a passage in Deuteronomy 7 that points this out uh, really clearly. I'm going to read this to you. You can write this down to look it up. Later, I'm not going to really spend a lot of time unpacking it, but just want to read it to you. I just want you to hear this kind of from the Old Testament perspective, this love that God has for us, because we kind of think of the Old Testament as like the mean, grouchy part of the Bible, right? But, but there, even there, God said, I, I love you. I, I love you because I love you. So here it is in Deuteronomy 7, 6. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. So that's that kind of adoption language we've been singing in uh, Romans 8, right? He's saying, I love you and I've, I've made you my treasured possession. And he goes on and he says, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, I chose you. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. Another way to say it is, it's not because you were great that I loved you because really you're pretty puny. But I loved you because I loved you. Hear this. It's not because you're more in number. You are the fewest. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. To a thousand generations. He says, I love you because I love you. I'm not loving you because you're so impressive. God is loving you because that is his nature. That's what he does. And so when the storms of life come, when things go wrong in our life, then we don't say, oh, maybe he doesn't love me anymore. Maybe I'm less lovable now. We say, no, I know, I'm confident, I believe that he loves me because that's what he does. That's who he is. And these circumstances can't change this. So if, if God is for us, who can be against us? The question is, if, if God is for us, what, what difference does it make? I, I want to kind of divide this whole little section into just two halves. So I know that'll freak out some of y'all. If you're, if you're regulars, I always do three-point sermons. I'm sorry to blow your mind. I'm going to do a two-point sermon today. But it's just a real clear kind of half-and-half structure here. And so what we're going to see is that God is for us in his justice. The second half will be God is also for us in his love. So he's going to start out with this courtroom in, uh, imagery. He's going to start with this language of charges and condemnation and accusation and how Jesus in the justice of God, won us to himself. And then he's going to move on to the love language. Those feelings of, I'm not sure if God's still with me, saying, no, God is still with you. God loves you, hasn't abandoned you. So the first section is that God is for us in his justice. And we see this in verses 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things is the question he starts off with. He said that phrase a few times in Romans. If you've been with us, you've heard him say that, right? He'll he'll kind of make some points and he's like, So what are we going to do about all that, right? Like, what are we going to say in response to this God who loves us so much? And he's saying this in response to where we've been in Romans 8. Some would say even all of Romans 5 through 8 because he's kind of uh, wrapping up a lot of the language he started with in Romans 5. And now he's kind of coming back to some of that same language here. So what shall we say to these things? This God that loves us, that adopts us, that saves us, that justifies us. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's what we say. If God is for us, who can be against us? And here's the thing, guys. It's a tension here. Um, On the one hand, it's ridiculous to say that anyone can be against us, right? But, But you live in the real world that I live in, and you know people are against you every day, right? So, so what, do we, what do we do with that? I think what Paul is saying is it's this kind of argument from the greater to the lesser. The idea is in the sense that um, nothing can stop God. Nothing can prevent the unstoppable love of God and what he's doing for us. In that sense, we have no enemies. But do we actually have enemies? Do we experience enemies? Yes, day after day after day. We experience the reality of people being against us. And we were to go back to these words and say, but God is for me. And so, yeah, this is against me, and this is against me, and this is against me, but in, in the God being for me, this is nothing, right? And so it enables us to persevere through all this stuff that's against us, recognizing, but God is for me. And so it, it shrinks everything that's against me. So if God is for us, who can be against us? Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's the proof, and he could just stop there, right? Like, you could just have those two verses. If God is for us, who could be against us? Well, God gave up Jesus for you. That's it. When, when doubts come, and you're not sure about the circumstances in your life, when there is depression, or where, the, where there's um, sickness, there's cancer, where there's divorce, where there's uh, anger, where there's bitterness, where there's abuse, 
those circumstances, you can't really explain your way out of those circumstances. You can't say, well, really these are okay, really these are good. No, but you can go to the cross and say, God has displayed his love for me, that he's for me in Jesus, because Jesus took my sin on the cross, and Jesus rose from the dead. And that's sure. And everything else is not sure. Everything else is crazy, but that's solid. So that's what we base everything else on. We, we come back to that clarity of Jesus being given up for us. It's an echo of, of Genesis 22, when uh, Abraham offers Isaac, and there's all this kind of foreshadowing language here, and I think it's helpful to understand some of the, the backstory, right? The Old Testament, there's all these stories that are setting up this picture of who Jesus is for us. Um, but I don't want to really spend a lot of time there. We studied that last summer. Here, I just want to say the, the real proof is not in any Old Testament story. Those just set up the real story. This, this is the real story. Like This is the one that counts. All those other ones were just getting us ready for it. But this is the story that counts. God gave up his own son for us. On the cross, Jesus took our sin and gives us his righteousness. And so that then sets up all this courtroom language. So look at the next verse, 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect or God's chosen one, right? So we saw earlier that, that we are his children. We're adopted. He's, he's picked us out. He's chosen to love us. He's made us his children. And he says, so then who can, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies So who can bring any charge? And he continues the same kind of language. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's setting up this language where he says, so who can bring any charge? Can anyone bring any charge? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can bring a charge against us? If God is for us, who can condemn us? And again, the answer is in this tension of, well, lots of people, right? There's all kinds of condemnation in, in my life. God uh, frequently blesses me in an uncomfortable way where he allows me to experience the, the pain point that the text I'm preaching on is about, right? And so this text swirls around this idea of, of condemnation and charges and needing to be assured that God loves us. And I had this unusual wave of, of just feeling condemnation feeling just like an idiot, like really not for any real good rational reasons. I mean, some maybe arguably rational reasons, but, but just this way, you know, sometimes there's just this, what seems like a supernatural assault of condemnation, of charges. Know that the Bible speaks to a supernatural reality, that there's an evil one, there's an accuser out there who does bring charges against us. And then there's those voices in your head, just your voices from experience, right? Your voices from childhood, your own habits, you're going to bring charges against yourself. And they're going to have friends in your life that just aren't the best friends. And they're going to bring charges against you and condemnation, right? And so there's going to be a lot of charges and a lot of condemnation that you're going to face in this life. And so the answer is not that those voices don't exist. The answer is that when you go to the cross and you go to a God who justifies and a Jesus who died for you and rose from the dead, that that diminishes those charges, that that just sweeps away those charges, that the case is closed, that, that you're not guilty, that you are justified. That's the word it uses here. Remember, justification means God literally makes us righteous. Like in our everyday life, we're, we're not so righteous. We do stupid things, but by faith, we're, we're covered with Christ, and our sin was placed on the cross, and he died for our sins. The sin that we deserve to die for, he died for. 
And he didn't just stay dead, but he rose from the dead, right? It says, Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? The cross and everything that the cross purchases for us is about his sacrificial death, and it's also about his resurrection. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 15 as well, and we're going to celebrate that at Easter time. That's kind of the time when we publicly talk about it the most, but it's always there. The death of Jesus is always connected to the resurrection of Jesus. It's what proves that he, that he finally defeated death once and for all. So not only was he a perfect sacrifice, it took our sin, but he gives us his righteousness and his resurrection life. It's two sides of that justification. So we're made just, we're made righteous. When God looks at you by faith in Jesus, he delights in you. He loves you. He, he sees you as desirable. He sees you as, as good. He sees you as okay. That's what justification means. Chandler, uh, Matt Chandler, a preacher in Dallas, often talks about, he doesn't just um, forgive you, but he likes you, right? We often think, well, God forgave my sin, but he really doesn't like me. He's, he's disgusted by me. No, he, he likes you. He delights in you. He loves you in Jesus. So that's all of what this language is, is saying. And it's not a just God sweeping stuff under the rug, right? That's not what grace means. It's not like he just doesn't care anymore. Like that was the Old Testament God that cared about justice. And now this New Testament God's all like, relax, right? He's kind of chilled out and it's no big deal anymore. Um, I grabbed a picture here of the scales of justice. Most courthouses have, have some kind of symbolic representation of justice, right? It might be a goddess who's blind to show that justice should be impartial, or it might be a goddess like this one holding scales to show that justice should be even and fair, right? And so what are we to, to do with this? Has God stopped being just in order to justify sinners, And the answer is clearly no. The scripture says he's both just and the justifier of the wicked, right? He he is both and, and that's because of the cross. On the cross, Jesus justly paid the righteous requirements of sin and death. And and so it's not less than justice, it's it's more than justice. Grace takes care of the just requirements. It, It closes the case. It settles the score, again, in the spiritual courtroom. So we have this courtroom imagery. Charges come. There are real charges. Condemnation comes. We deserve condemnation. We're, we're sinners. We haven't loved each other like we should. We haven't stood up for each other like we should. We haven't done things the way that we should do things. So that condemnation is real, but it's shut down through the cross of Christ. So that's what Paul is describing here in this tension of, it's almost like the charges aren't even there. And so in the day-to-day reality, when we hear those charges, whether it's from your friend, from your own mind, spiritual attacks, just messages we hear in culture, these messages of condemnation, the answer is, yes, I deserve condemnation, but Jesus took care of it for me. That's what grace means. Not, Not that my sin doesn't exist, but Jesus took care of it for me. Jesus took care of it for me. That's why we can confess sin and not despair. We can agree with God. The word confession, the the Bible word, literally just means to say the same thing as. So confession of sin for a Christian is not whipping yourself. It's not beating.